Right. All right, man, let's do it. Here we are. Hey, we're here. Here we are. The Data Protection Breakfast Club with Heather Fetterman from Big ID coming up soon. Uh, Rod Stewart's the theme, Forever Young. She's achieved a ton. Um, yeah, she sure has. Been in the game uh, for, you know, not, not decades and decades like others we've talked to. Um, so she's um, achieved a ton, worked at some really cool companies. And um, yeah, I think of her as like, fancy New York privacy person, you know, like, um, she just has worked at like these really big, like iconic companies. Um, and now she's tackling like identity graph, identity management issues at a big ID. And, uh, man, she's pretty smart. Uh, and, and has really broad experience in like, uh, not a short career, but in like, a, I mean, just early on was doing important things, you know, like, uh, and worked with some great people. I know she's, She's worked with, with Jules and, and my great friend, Mike McCullough over at Macy's. And um, these are some deep thinkers that she's been able to kind of be around. And, and I think uh, it goes both me. ways. It goes both ways, right? Like yeah. you and I have talked many times about mentors and the importance of mentors and yeah. the importance of learning from the people that we've hired and worked with as well. But um, in her case, it's two heavyweights and they invested in her and vice versa. Right. And, exactly. you know, if, if David Hale didn't invest in me, who was a CPO at TD Ameritrade, like I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, but he invested in me and like, um, others as well. Um, yeah. Same here. Shout out to Bert Kaminsky and shout out to Dennis Ollie, who's not even a privacy lawyer. He's a corporate M and A lawyer, but gave me the bandwidth at a law firm to uh, figure out how to do this. Um, yeah, so it's, it's not just privacy, you know, and, and mentors come come from every every walk of life, every angle. Um, exactly. I got, I got a, there's a, a mentor of mine who is the chief legal officer at the trade desk now. And, uh, and before that, he was not in ad tech. So yeah. when I met him, he was the general counsel of a different company. Yeah. And just gave me life advice. GC yeah. advice, life advice. It's all. Yeah, good. that's how I feel about that's how I feel about Dennis. I mean, he's not a privacy practitioner or a tech lawyer. He's kind of like your old tradition traditional form of corporate lawyer. And um, yeah, I mean, anytime I have a really difficult kind of, especially like non-privacy related, but like corporate navigation related issue or question, he's the guy who goes and he's he's saved my uh, he saved my hair a few times. Yeah. Who do you go to? when you have, and then we'll get to Heather's conversation, but who do you go to yeah. when you have a moral and ethical concern? Who's your, That's a great, who's your sounding board? Yeah. Um, Dennis is in that equation for sure. Um, you are, uh, Same. for sure. Yeah, you are. Um, uh, Vivek, who has been on our show and is awesome. Um, and uh, a couple of what, like Ann Bradley from Nike is someone who I think of as like very, uh, uh, you know, ethically uh, s sound. Like she is, it's, it's not that she doesn't compromise, but it, she, she just has a great ethical foundation and always gives me really good advice about hard problems. And honestly, man, I turn to my dad, you know, my family, um, uh, you know, people whose values go who my understanding of their values like goes well beyond work you know like my dad doesn't understand any of this shit that we do um but you know uh you you can learn a lot from a handyman i agree from yeah. from anybody and uh in in my case on on the some of it some of it is from my wife just in in 
in uh, kind of conversations that involve people in particular. She's really good in those conversations. And then on the on the more kind of like worky legally stuff, Scott Lashway at Manat is a, is like he was my friend before he was my outside counsel. So that helps, you know, number one, but he helped me sort through a lot of issues. And I think sometimes you need like an, another person that's either been in your shoes or been in similar scenarios to say to you, look, you've done what you can do here. You didn't need to do anything different, you know, and if, and if, and if you do need to be doing something different, here's what you, you could do. And that, that's kind of, it's like, like completely underrated to have friends and advisors like that. Totally agree, man. Totally agree. But um, speaking of amazing people, let's get Heather on here and get the show started. Nice transition. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we are at the Data Protection Breakfast Club with Heather Fetterman and Pedro, who's laughing again uh, at the intro. My goal is to laugh at every intro now. I can't stop. <laughs> we always say here we are <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> It's become a thing. All right. Well, tee it up for us, my man. You, you're the, you picked this, you picked this theme. Yeah. Well, I don't know why I picked the theme. I just thought it's a cool song. And, um, and you know, like, I guess Forever Young is kind of like a weird American anthem. I was like researching around like the history of the song. And Rod Stewart said at some point, like, it's not even a hit in the UK or in Europe, but in the US, it's this like iconic song, which is interesting how that works. But, like here in the States, I feel like this song is kind of like emblematic of like American, like mid-age crisis, but we're still like super energetic vibes. Does that make sense? Like, I feel like this starts playing into like, um, you know, crisis mobile that like 45 year old men buy. So I have no reason, no idea why I picked this for Heather. I just thought it was cool. <laughs> I tried to come up with some random thing about how, like, uh, you know, like Heather's pragmatism and Americana spirit is amazing, but like the reality is the song's just kind of cool, and I figured, why not? I think she like also that. achieved a lot at a young age. So she's achieved more than anybody I know at a young age. But like that, yeah, she's done some cool things, and we'll get into that stuff in a second. But um, anyway, Heather, uh, we usually tee it up with like some random question. You're one of our younger guests. Like, what's your interaction with 80s music? Like, do you, do, do, do you like 80s music? And if you do, what do you like? And if you hate it, then tell us about whatever you want. There's actually, I mean, I don't know if it closed down, but uh, in Alphabet City, in, in the, the East Village, there's a place called the Pyramid Club and they have 80s nights. And I'm, I'm really hoping to get back there. I'm, I'm, I'm born in the 80s and I'm definitely an 80s baby. Um, I don't know, right now, it just it came to my mind is my Sharona. Oh, nice. The knack. The knack. Nice, nice. Um, and then basically the whole soundtrack to American Psycho is pretty great. Yeah, no, that is a good soundtrack. Okay, good. So you know the vibes. By the way, one day we got to talk about my uh, Airbnb in Alphabet City. It was a whole thing. One oh, day. Wow. We're not going to do that on the podcast. But it was a whole thing. And it was a basement. Um, and it was an interesting time. Of Phil Collins' house. Yeah, shout out to Alphabet City, man. That, that, that's what I got. But Anyway, um, all right, cool. Let, let's jump into it, Heather. Like, all right, so like, I've always admired two things about you. One, obviously, how smart you are and how much you know about what we do every day. But also, like, how you tackle big problems at big companies. I mean, you were at Amex, then you're at Macy's, and now you're 
at Big IT doing doing super cool things. Can you tell us a little bit about like how you ended up at American Express and maybe like some of the things you tackled there and then how that helped you in your transition to an even bigger role at Macy's? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and thank you for the compliment. That was, that was yeah. very kind of you. Um, let's see, I mean, Starting with Amex, I guess. Well, so I, I got I, I the Amex job happened because I had um, I had met then Chief Privacy Officer Lee Feldman, um, who's also another uh, big wig in the industry, and I had met him at an event and we had stayed in touch. So he knew that I was looking when a spot in his team opened up. He encouraged me to apply. And um, for those who are listening who might not know, financial institutions, it's typically a uh, you have a privacy person per uh, uh, subject or per unit or per card. And I was positioned as the privacy expert for all the marketing related activities, which was really cool. It was a great learning experience, um, a lot of partnerships with the business. The challenge though, I, I kept running into is because marketing kind of touches upon every aspect of the business. So if you wanted to market the platinum card or the gold card or uh, one of our merchant programs, uh, it could constantly require not just going straight to that business unit, but having to talk with their privacy person about what was going on. And they might not always understand how cross device tracking and cookies work and all of this stuff. So it always ended up being a lot more, um, many more discussions than necessary. So I think that's where my desire for practicality probably set in where I just, I kind of like to get to the point of the matter and have the people who are necessary for the conversation there. And sometimes you might just have too many cooks in the kitchen. But um, I did enjoy my time there. I, I still love um, some of the, the folks that I worked with at Amex, really, really great people. And I'd also say I've learned a lot from just people I have worked with over time. There, That's that's how I became who I am today. So I, I constantly want to send out credit back to them. And another folks, another person that I had met um, during my DC days, which was prior to Amex, was um, Sir Michael McCullough, um, who is the chief privacy officer at Macy's. And he's someone that I was friends with for, for years. And then a spot in his team opened up and it was at, um, it was a higher position. It was uh, not just marketing. It was kind of everything. It was basically the right hand woman to the, the CPO. And so it was kind of hard to, to say no to that position. So for four and a half years, I, I basically learned all that I could. Um, working at a retailer was definitely a different experience than a financial institution, different issues that came up, different problems. Um, it's funny because I think there's a little bit of beef between merchants and the finance financial institutions. I was reading some uh, public commentary that came from a retailer today. So you can kind of see it playing out. Um, and, and yeah, I just, I learned as much as I possibly could. I, I constantly think of it that it's just, I, I've always considered, when you say the song Forever Young, I've always considered myself to be a student, even though now I'm getting paid to be a student. I look at it that life is just one big classroom and each of these are just different courses that happen to go beyond the semester. So that's always been my philosophy. So now a big ID, it is more of a leadership position where I am the one in charge, but even so I'm learning every day on the job and I hope to continue learning in my career. That's critical. That's so important. And it's, it's one of the things that we've talked about that we look for when we try to hire. Number one, hiring is so hard. 
in general, just to hire and find people that you think are going to be um, a good fit, helpful. But like, there's two things, and one of them is curiosity. So the 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 desire to learn more, the like kind of innate stuff, and you can develop questions to sort of suss that out. But you don't. It's hard to get to. You know, you can ask someone like, do they like to, do you like to learn? Do you like to, like to do those things? And they may answer them in a certain way, but I think you have to probe deeper. Like, what do you read? What are you interested in? Like what interests you outside of work and get, try to get a vibe for someone. So I think like, that's a really nice, it's an, it's an, it's a nice, uh, it's a good way to kind of get a proxy for a person that I think is going to be a fit in particularly tech companies where, it's this inevitable process of learning with companies innovating right under your feet. So if you're not learning, you're lost, you know? I always wonder what things happening under my feet means. But anyway, um, like what's happening under my feet, man. It's just so weird. Where you are. Where my are feet you? Why are my feet involved at work? Why are um, we here? Why are we all here? What is the purpose <laughs> of the world? Um, Heather, let me ask you this. So like now you have big ID. Obviously, the company deals and operates in a highly sensitive uh, area, which you know, which is helping safeguard um, some of the most sensitive information that companies have on people, their employees, you know, customers, etc. Um, uh, you know, from a privacy practitioner perspective, like, what are like the two scariest things about what? your not necessarily what your company does but like the space your company operates in and um and and how are you dealing with them maybe let's start with one what's the scariest thing that you're dealing with and 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 how, how are you dealing with it i mean i'd say it's it's scary in the sense as yeah. you said, that i i am intimately familiar with the level of uh risk associated with the type of data that um that we process because it's i mean we're helping companies find their most highly sensitive data and tag that basically to an identity using all sorts of machine learning algorithms cool stuff but there's always there's always the flip side that might come with that what's ex i mean what's nice is that for a very long time we've been an on-premise solution and we still predominantly are so we're not really touching that sensitive data so for a long time the company didn't have to worry about those issues but we are expanding because there are certain customers who want us to be the ones hosting that and therefore we are the processor and the responsibility is on us so you know i, I always think back to that spider-man quote with great power comes great responsibility uh, there's a lot of power in that sensitive data. So it just, it ups the level of responsibility that that we as a company um, have to make sure that we are, are taking as, as stewards of that data and making sure we're acting as a good processor in that situation. Do you ever think about like the complexity involved in dealing with consumer employee, just people data mm. in the in the sense that the people themselves, you probably aren't even aware you're touching it. Like, is that something you think about? Um, uh, and if you do, like, what, what are yeah. your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that, I, I do think about that. When I was at Macy's, we I had to deal with HR issues all the time. And it's, it's crazy some of the stuff that's happening there that's pretty under the radar, not as reported on, which to me is quite surprising because uh, employers have very sensitive information 
on their employees. And there's all sorts of things that are going on around monitoring their productivity, monitoring their health now with the pandemic, uh, tracking their location. It's it's a little insane if we really think about it. I don't have to worry about it as much because thankfully we have less than 200 employees. So it's pretty manageable in what it is we have to do. But for me, where my concerns actually come in are when we're working with other service providers because we, we use X company to manage billing or Y company to help with um, processing, uh, credit processing or onboarding employees. And they're all getting different types of data. So I, at the end of the day, it's still dealing with the same issues that every other privacy officer has to deal with. About the like, um, like the at work surveillance, I mean, I'm sure COVID and I think we actually talked about this on panel, like COVID has obviously exacerbated um, and accelerated a lot of the like employer-based surveillance because employees are working remotely all over the world. Um, and we most recently saw like Microsoft come up with some kind of solution where they, they would score people's productivity based on usage of their apps and stuff and saw a lot of backlash. Where's the line between employers ability and need to monitor employee activities to safeguard information you know to protect corporate assets and to protect employees and customers um and preserving employee privacy like i've thought about this a lot i thought about it a lot at salesforce at oracle and other um, jobs and, and i don't know where the line is it's hard to say like what are, what are your thoughts on how to find a balance between those two interests yeah it's i, I agree with you it's a really hard line um I think when it comes to the security that we're still trying to figure out in terms of data loss prevention of employees downloading sensitive, um, just confidential proprietary info to their own um, their own machines is always going to be an issue. So that that is something that is less of a privacy concern, more of a um, intellectual property security concern. When it comes to the productivity and monitoring, though, I, I don't know how necessary that really is. Um, in some ways, I, I don't know if it's actually even good for the, the, the level of trust that an employee might have with their managers or their employers. There might be certain situations where, let's say you're in customer service and perhaps you want to record the call with someone who's calling in. Well, there are reasons for that. You want to see how the call went. You could use it as... Um, uh, for, 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 for quality and assurance, you could use it for, let's say, um, as an example, uh, for education, for other customer service okay. agents. So in those situations where there are very clear, specific defined use cases, it, it makes sense. But when then we uh, delve into this range of secondary undefined uses, then it becomes a bit unclear. So I think with the Microsoft, I think it was Microsoft recently that they, they pulled back and they said they're going to do it in a more aggregated fashion. If we're doing perhaps an aggregated look at how, uh, what productivity is like, maybe it's better at 10 a.m. because everyone's had their coffee kick in versus 9 a.m., then that to me makes sense. But when we get down to the individual employee, that might be a problem, even if, even if there are issues with a specific employee. I definitely worry about productivity surveillance and I look at it through my own anecdotal lens and I know that the way I work is very differently than the way other people work. Like I work in like a, in a, in a breadcrumbs way, which is like, I'll have like five different things I'm working on all at once and I'll do little pieces of them throughout the day. 
I won't just work on one thing for five hours and then another thing for three hours and another thing for two hours. And so I might have six things that I'm working on and all of them show sort of incomplete at any given time um, in various stages of incompleteness. And I feel like measuring that productivity against a different working style might be, might create some unfairness for me or for the other working style. I don't know, but like, it just, I don't know how you decide that someone's productive based on how much time they use an app or how many times they click on it. Then there's the issue of efficiency. Like if Andy's really good at a specific task and I'm learning or inexperienced at that task, the potential for Andy to be much faster than I am is very high. So Andy might work on something for five minutes and do it might take me two hours, right? Like who's yeah. more productive there, right? Um, it, you know, it depends on how you look at that issue. So these things kind of bother me from a privacy perspective. They're, they're a little tricky because now you're talking about well, these so-called objective measures, uh, measurables um, being used to determine my performance, but they really are being weighed against other people who are using the same tools in their own way because nobody uses tools exactly the same way. So it's all kind of freaky to me. Yeah. Even outside of productivity tools, with respect to monitoring employee activity on apps, it, it, you know, we had a situation arise two, two companies ago where somebody had to be let go because of material that they put on a chat app, you know, that the company was using. And so, like, it's hard because you want to encourage culture, especially in small companies. I've been in both size, you know, larger companies and small. But when you're growing one of the things that you're trying to do is create this, you know, really nice culture and vibe to attract people and have fun. And, and, and you're trying to allow people to bring their whole selves to work, which is a, which is a great thing to be able to do. And right now, I mean, working, working remotely, I'm on Slack all the time. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of that. And then in this instance, we had to, we had to become aware and monitor, you know, the activity in this chat area and and someone paid a, a consequence for it now they deserved it but like i had questions even at the time about whether we could do that and, and whether that whether that how did that feel to me even though objectively i looked at the content that was posted and said yes this person can't work here anymore um but it's interesting like i i don't know where that line is either so i don't know where the line is and on what you can actually look at more deeply like going in and actually looking it's um it's very hard to quantify emotional harms so i mean it's is it a, a dignitary issue we we it's 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 very hard to suss that out and I, I almost think we have less privacy rights as employees than we do as consumers to a certain extent there's a, there's a good amount of law now and and an action on uh, consumer protection, but there isn't as much for employees. I think that's a really good point. I, I don't, I, I don't know, Pedro, like what your experience is, but uh, as the as the GC of a small company, the mandate is everything, and so that that everything extends from privacy, you know, on the product um, and where we're paying attention to features and and functionality and also the people in the organization. And um, I just always feel that that area is underserved. Like I'm, I'm always feeling like I can't spend enough time thinking through any of those issues for our people on the privacy side, particularly when we're, when we're a company that has global operations and I'm trying to consider what their 
what their local laws require of me with respect to being their employer and the data that we're processing just to employ them. And, you know, as you said, Heather, to like make, make systems and services available to them. And I always feel underserved in that area. So I'm curious if you all feel the same way or you all, you know, maybe at, at bigger companies, you just have bigger teams to leverage. But my experience has been that those areas are also kind of underserved in bigger companies too. Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely been, had some shared responsibility for supporting like, like, you know, the HR backend of like employee data management, right? And, you know, it's not always about productivity or like punitive, like, you know, we think such and such is stealing documents or whatever. Like sometimes it's just like, I've seen issues where it's like, we wanna make sure someone's working in the country they say they're in because of tax issues or because of uh, uh, an embargo or whatever, right? Like um, there are lots of reasons why you want to know more about how and where and when your employees are working. But to your point, like, for example, if I am a US-based privacy lawyer supporting our, our HR operation at a big company, and I get an ask about an employee in another country uh, who is working on, you know, who, who is not only subject to different privacy laws and rules, but also different employment laws and rules, I don't have a quick answer for that. And I don't think any company has like the amount of resources to staff HR privacy people in every country that they operate in, even if they're big conglomerates. Now, now let's make that a small company that's distributed, right? Like a small startup that has people all over the world. Like how do they deal with these problems? It's impossible to know. Now I think companies get away with more with respect to employees because companies also generally have more rights to that data based on just the relationship with the employee and how disclosure works. Um, but that's increasingly not the case in places like, you know, the EU. So I don't know, Heather, what you think about that. Uh, yeah, although it's funny in the EU, on the flip side, the, I think at least in the UK, the number one use of GDPR has been with employees. Is that uh, right? For, for, for data subject rights, because they want to use that as some sort of separation package when they're, when they're leaving the company. How interesting. Yeah, so there is a flip side. Yeah, I mean, I can see being a cranky employee on my way out, be like, okay, cool, DSR, I want to know everything, you know? Like, um, I, I, could, I could see that. Um, and uh, yeah, see, that's super interesting. I didn't know that that kind of changed the way I think about all of this a little bit. But let's, I, this is such an interesting topic. But I want to ask you more about, like, identity. Because one of the things I see a lot is, um, like, identity being commoditized like being able to follow a consumer or an employee or just a person like across channels, either within a company or in between companies to better advertise to them, better deliver a, a more tailored experience. Like there are a lot of great reasons why you want to know who someone is as they travel through like the e-commerce ecosystem. Um, I see a lot of privacy challenges with creating like universal IDs for people. Um, uh, like, how do you guys grapple with the idea that you could get identity wrong, either characteristics of someone's identity or correlate documents or information incorrectly to people that result in major decisions being made about that? Like, mm -hmm. how, how do you think about that? Um, so as a, for what we do at Big ID, we essentially have different um, machine learning methods in which there's a confidence score 
so keeping it very simple because I'm, I'm not the, the engineer here, but essentially there's some sort of confidence score of saying that we have a very high confidence that this person is, is, is Andy, that this data is tied to Andy, that it's tied to this address, to this SSN number, and you can now do what you want with that. So that, that's, that's essentially how it works in a very high level of essentially being able to correlate that identity to say, this is who this person is. Um, what you do with that identity though, um, that's a very different story. Um, I, I think there are pros and cons with identity. On the one hand, it is good to know that this person is who they say they are. There's a lot of power in that. And there's ways that if you actually care about uh, making it a good customer experience. If you know their identity, you can actually give them a really great experience and have it personalized to them. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with personalization, but it's when we start seeing misuses of that identity, abuses of that identity um, from over-targeting them, perhaps from uh, an identity theft issue, perhaps. Um, because you had an insecure system. So you allowed that identity to be, to be leaked somehow. So those are the sort of issues um, I see around identity. Um, can I can I take it to a personal place for for a moment? Because um, one of my first experiences when I was working in privacy was uh, when I was at the Future Privacy Forum. Um, that was my first um, my first job out of law school, and um, I actually was was going to the, this a public meeting with my then boss Jules Polnetsky and. People started approaching me at this meeting saying like, hey, you friended me on Facebook. Like, you know, I didn't know that you were into XYZ. And I was really confused because I had no recollection of friending them on Facebook. And then I go online and someone had created a fake Facebook profile of me where they had swiped a picture um, from a Google photo. They had put that I worked at FPF. They put that I liked the Federal Trade Commission and started friending all these random people in the privacy community. This was like seven years ago. And it just coincidentally happened that like I happened to meet Rob Sherman that day, um, who's at Facebook, as you know, and I like, like emailed him crying, like, Rob, I don't know what's going on. Can you help me? Can you take this down? So they were able to take down the fake profile. And then Jules, at the end of the day, reprimanded me saying, well, it's your fault because you didn't own your digital identity. Because hmm. I didn't That's have, I didn't have enough information on my profile. So I also think it's a mixture now. It's the company, it's on us. And it's companies like mine that help us help the the businesses know the identity, but there's also this other pull where you as the end users, the consumer, and we're all consumers at the end of the day, you also need to have ownership over your own digital identity uh, and, and, and have certain rights that are associated with that. Whether we're going about doing it right in terms of regulation, that's another story, but it is that push and pull between my right as a consumer to own my identity and your right as a business to have an identity about me and do the best that you can with it. What did Jules mean that you should have been doing differently? I mean, I think practically speaking, like, I don't, I don't know what- I think what he's saying, I think you tell me Heather, but like the yeah. way I read it is like, it's hard to create a fake profile and people believe it of me because my profile is well established like on LinkedIn and Facebook mm -hmm. and IG, right? So if somebody creates another one, most people will know it's a dummy identity. 
Is that what he's meant? That's what that's I essentially what, That's essentially what he meant. I, I wasn't using, it was before verified accounts came out. It was before Facebook had their real name policy. And I was using like a, a nickname on Facebook. I wasn't friends with anyone in the privacy community on Facebook. So it was, it was a bit different. So I, I understood what he was saying, but it also kind of like marked the end of having a purely non-digital experience to me. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Rob Sherman. That's my boss, by the way. That's why I was dabbling there a second. He was pinging me a second ago and shout out to Jules, um, who's the best. And we talk about all the time here. But. We had him on episode two. Yeah. 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 He's an OG. Yeah, he's OG. Oh, and we'll also shout out to Mike McCullough, one of my great friends and um, your former boss too. I mean, man, you have touched all the, all the players. That's good stuff. They're all good. They're all, they're all the greats though. Mike's the best. We got to get Mike on the, on the podcast, Andy. He's, he's, hilarious mm-hmm. it's hilarious i mean it, it's it's uh, i did want to talk about retail a little bit because that's a particularly interesting space for privacy to me um my last company we did a lot of loyalty program software and dealt with a lot of retail and retail is in this like really hard place right now mm-hmm. um for business and i was curious about um the way in which they embrace digital over the over the years you were there because i would imagine based on the time you were there, there was a desire to more deeply embrace digital and how you did that in, in an organization that is not historically, th- it's a store, right? So it's not a large chain of stores. So it's hard to imagine. I think for other people that aren't in the game, like we are, it's hard for people to imagine that all of these companies are wanting to be much more uh, powerful digital players than they are. Um, and, and so I was curious about that a little bit at Macy's. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a big uh, emphasis on going digital or as they called it, omni-channel um, and being able to interact with a consumer through various platforms. And, and I, I don't know if we ever fully got there and, and perhaps, I mean, I'll, we'll see how things are post pandemic because I know right now it's, everyone's in a bit of a, a struggle. But what is exciting is the ability to blend the digital and the real world experience. And that is something I think could really be the future of retail is being able to, let's say, have your Macy's mobile app out on your phone while also being in the store at the same time. You're looking for a product. It'll direct you to where you are in the store, um, using that perhaps for a self-checkout. There are some really cool opportunities that could be done um, in the mobile world. Um, I'm, I'm really hoping that retail will get there because I'm personally not the biggest fan of online shopping. Um, I'm really bad with figuring out sizes and I like touching, you know, the, whatever it is I'm about to buy. So I, I don't, I really hope that the pandemic is not the end of retail. It seems that it's definitely put a huge dent in it, but I, I think, I think for retail, it's really about that blend of the in-store and the online experience. Um, and, and really figuring out how to make that a seamless experience, consumer experience at the end of the day. Nothing ends, you know, I think it's just going to evolve. Yeah. And the retail yeah. experience will evolve. Yeah. Yeah. Home Depot, the pandemic has been the best thing for retail that ever happened, right? I mean, these guys are booming and bopping to Home Depot. To your point about seamless experiences, though, like I was at Home Depot over the weekend, Andy, and this goes to your question about like retail experience. Like I asked somebody, um, I can't remember like what I was buying, but hey, where can I find, you know, whatever widget? And he pulled out his cell phone, which is clearly his own cell phone, logged into something, 
and said, oh, it's an aisle 15 in the store, whatever, section two of aisle 15. And that's happened to me at Home Depot a couple of times because I go to Home Depot seven times a week because it's like now the town center of the world because everything else is closed. And I've had that experience a few times. I love that experience. Now the one up for that is I don't have to talk to anybody at all, right? Like I can just, amidst the pandemic, I don't want to interact with people that much, right? So like, um, how cool would it be if it knew like what I'm, who I am and the things I bought. And when I walk into the store, I'm like, I'm looking for whatever widget and knows I bought this other one, and it points me right to the thing that I'm looking for without actually having to talk to him. A great example, specifically in Home Depot, which is a sea of items, right? And impossible yeah. to find anything like, and, um, and, and in retail, it'd be even better. I can imagine those experiences being, being great. We had, there's a lot of opportunity um, at, at Session M. McDonald's was a customer of ours again, and I always use it as an example uh, of a company that is, is heavily embracing digital technology and is basically a tech company at this point. And, and people are just, don't, they don't get it right away when you say, yeah, like they're leveraging just a ton of technology and buying co tech companies. Like they're actually out there. They bought an ad tech company two years ago. Like there there's your, your boy, Peter Nadimi. I don't know if you met him yet at Facebook came from McDonald's. Like there's, there's, um, there's tech flowing through all of these things. And, and um, I think retail is gonna bounce hard into it personally. Oh, yeah, I think so too, I think so too. Can, you, can we just have a side note and can you explain to me the magic of Home Depot? Because my, my father feels the need to go there every weekend and I'm just trying to understand what's so appealing about it. First of all, I'll, I am not the super handy type or anything like that. But I mean, first of all, I live in Atlanta, Home Depot. Um, uh, and so there's a thousand Home Depots here and I, I ha I'm bored. So it's like the other day I was like, you know, my birdhouse, I should probably paint it. You know, it's like I went to Home Depot and bought some paint and whatever. Then I was like, you know, my garage is looking kind of boring. Maybe I'll buy some flags and put them up on the wall. Well, guess what? Got to go to Home Depot and buy a bunch of flag shit to do. And at the beginning of the pandemic, like things I never did, like grilling. I didn't grill. I just would go order food and do whatever. Now it's like I'm Mr. Grill Master, but Home Depot. Home Depot delivered, a bit, assembled the grill and delivered it to my house. And I did this all on my phone, which is super cool. Right? Uh -huh. um, I didn't have to, this is at the beginning of the pandemic where like things were really scary. And so Home Depot was like, yeah, cool. We'll build it and send it. And they dropped it off from the back of my garage. And, and then I had a grill. So I think that's what it is. I think people were really bored. Um, Home Depot is the most popping place in Atlanta on a Saturday morning. I think also you're seeing, also you're seeing innovation, forced innovation by companies um, that are facing challenges and uh, are producing really interesting things in, in, yeah. the, in the face of this stuff. Like Heather, you mentioned some stuff that maybe would make the retail experience better. I can definitely see that when people start going back into stores, a push from tech, from companies to be more tech forward and how they're creating an omni-channel experience in a store or like, um, or, or just look at like grocery delivery and things that have like completely sort of like amped up because they had to, um, there's a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, I know everyone kind of, um, looks down on minority report when they, when, you know, he goes to the mall and they've got the emotional recognition or the facial recognition, but I would love that if I went to a store and they were just able to scan me and say, we know what you like, we know your vibe today. We know what you need. If they could figure that out and do it in a non-creepy way, I'm, I'm really okay with that. I think so too. And like, you know, Uber, I think actually has done a good job of something like that, where like when I order or call 
do you order an Uber? Or do you call an Uber? Whatever. When I request an Uber, mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, you know, you can put like, I don't feel like talking today. My, you know, I want the car cool. And I can change that depending on the day and the hour, whatever. Same thing for retail, like the minority report experience. Maybe today I'm in the mood, right? Like I want to buy something and I'm going to treat myself and I want, want this great experience. Maybe tomorrow I just want to walk through the mall quietly and be left alone. And if I could just say to the store today, leave me alone. And like, no people approach me, no like robots attack me, no ads bury me like that's great and other times it's like no I need all the help I can get I gotta buy my you know whatever my significant other or an anniversary gift I don't know what to do um then shower me with assistance right like I wish we could have that and I think well to Andy's point I think it's coming mm-hmm. I think it's coming privacy problems arise <laughs> oh well, Heather said it you know in in her example if they could do that for me in a non-creepy way exactly and like, this is the thing that comes up all the time. Are, are the three of us the judges of what's creepy or not? Yeah. I mean, or, there's a lot of nuance in that statement. And, um, and when we talked with Noga Rosenthal, she, she was saying she feels uncomfortable making that judgment on behalf of people, you know, and often as the, the privacy lawyer in a company at a platform or something that has wide reach, we are kind of making those making those types of decisions it's weird yeah i constantly am in this weird place where either i feel that i care way too much uh versus the average consumer or i just don't really care at all because it's like so five years ago whatever issue is all of a sudden that's being reported on and some friend is sending me an article with some crazy headline about so it's this weird place that we sit in where it's like we're almost too advanced or we're not advanced enough in other areas or we're not that we're not advanced we're just kind of over it or we like we've already kind of crossed that path like we've crossed the path with cookies i know we're deprecating cookies but like cookies are not scary to me anymore perhaps they were a while ago that's not what scares me these days there are other things right now that scare me that maybe once i've that once we have dealt with it as an industry that'll be the big news story but people will it's that it's that weird middle line where where is the reasonable consumer i'm not quite sure because i don't think that is us and i definitely don't think it's the regulators um shout out to the regulators but i i really do think that like that we as a privacy um ecosystem of practitioners regulators and and advisors need to think really carefully about whether or not we're pat- patronizing the public a little bit mm-hmm. right um because i think we need to do more listening than we've historically done and respect the general public's ability to make decisions for their own about their own well-being. Now, with that being said, we also can't hide the ball and you can't mislead people. Yeah. You can't, you know, like yeah. it's not simple and it's not straightforward, but it's not straightforward either way is my point. Like it's not straightforward, overregulate, crush industry, you know, get rid of social media, no more cookies, no more tracking. Like, I don't think that's the answer. The other answer it can't, but the alternative also isn't free for all. It's just finding that balance, I think is difficult and the longer road ahead, but it's one we have to, endeavor to take the longer we go the longer we go without a federal law guiding online data use the the longer this is going to stay the same and and like even if we had a law it will be imperfect it will be enforced imperfectly we won't be able to figure it out but i think i mean 
I don't know how we get to, I don't know how we get closer to the middle without. But this panacea, and we've talked about this before. <laughs> it probably is, right? Yeah, like, have I interested to hear a point of view on this, especially if you don't agree with me, but like this idea that like, well, once we have a law, things will be fixed. Well, look, GDPR is there. Did GDPR fix privacy? I don't think so. Like, you know, you've got like privacy advocates like Max Schrems and, and some consumer advocacy groups and then some, um, you know, activist consumers exercising their rights that GDPR grants them. And I think that that's great. But overwhelmingly, like grandma at home is not filing DSR requests, right? Like data subject access requests. Like that's just not happening. And so, and did companies change the way they operate and stop processing categorically entire types of data? I don't see that either. So if the companies were able to implement the requirements of the law and continue to do business as usual, if the average consumer is not engaged, and the only folks really enforcing it are the regulators themselves and then activists. Have has the new law really made consumers safer? I don't. I don't. I don't um. Yeah. I mean, I, I really struggle with the struggle. idea. I struggle with the idea of whether federal privacy legislation is even worth it. Because one, I'm one, I'm deeply cynical that it'll actually happen. Um, if we couldn't get our act together for data breach after um, the breach. I don't know how we're going to get together for, for privacy. So that's part of it. Um, you know, we don't even have a fundamental right to privacy in our constitution, whereas that right does exist for uh, the European Union. And like you said, even GDPR still has problems. I think what GDPR does is it really gives teeth to it because uh, the enforcement, the, 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 the enforcement and the fines are so strong there. Um, what I do find somewhat troubling, and I think this goes to your kind of example of grandma sitting at home, is that all of these regulations coming out right now, they rely upon the consumer having to exercise their rights. And while I'm, I'm all about giving power to the consumers, I mean, grandma's not going to go around doing like a hundred different DSAR requests. She doesn't have time for that. And, and does she even care? So I don't know if we're thinking about regulation in the right way, where we're still putting the transparency and choice obligations onto the burden of the consumer. Whereas how do we put that, I mean, how do we put that burden on us, the, the data stewards? And I'm, 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 I'm not quite sure how we do that in a way that actually um, won't screw us over, um, but is done in a thoughtful way where it's not patronizing, but it doesn't overly hurt the bottom line either. And I'm, 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 re I'm actually really struggling with what that middle line is right now. I agree with you. I, like on all, all of the things you just said, and in particular, the idea that there's going to be gridlock and it's going to be very difficult to get something done. And Pedro, I agree with you that it won't be a panacea and it won't solve things. But I have a tough time envisioning how meaningful change happens without something. And, and I'm not saying it's good or bad uh, or, or one way or the other. And the GDPR is good for some things and you know, maybe hasn't, hasn't been as successful for others, but it's a thing, right? And that we're all paying attention to it and we're all taking action around it. And I agree, like grandma's not doing a bunch of, a bunch of requests and I get that. It, it, and sometimes I, I sit back and I think about it and I, and I just go, yeah, I guess, I mean, maybe that just wasn't even the point. The point is that, that that the things are there, the, the the rights are there, and we're making we're making incremental progress. Like I just don't think there's too many things that have to happen at once 
for it to be this as panacea or like i just think like look at the uh, and and again which is which is freehanding this a little bit so like my thoughts aren't super polished on this but like the operational costs of implementing all of the data subject access rights that were given grandma when we're in full knowledge that overwhelmingly grandmas aren't going to exercise them at all is an interesting way to govern yourself right like i just don't understand right like like it's it, it's it, it, i don't know if it's an effective way to drive privacy protections well professor goldman professor goldman said this to us you know when he was talking about the lack of focus on the federal government's use of personal data don't get me started on right. we so like, it, it, because it's the feds right we can vacillate back and forth about yeah. i about think Go the goal was basically like you know facebook social uh, google social media whatever you know they'll never be able to do some of the things governments will do which is like withhold your liberty take your life and do these intense things yep. and nobody's looking in that direction and I, you know i don't have data access rights i mean some like i guess but like I don't have the level of data access rights with the UK government that I do with, you know, Twitter. And I don't know that that makes any sense. That's a good point. Thoughts. Yeah. Well, I will, I will say I enjoy your Harvard library back there. <laughs> and uh, I like the analog books you have back there. I love no, no privacy issues. My leather bound uh, books. Yeah. Leather bound. Yeah. Leather -bound well, hey, yeah. Heather, thank you for joining us. This super right. interesting conversation. Um, I like for the leather, leather bound books as well. Yeah, it looks good. Thanks for hanging out with us, my friend. Thank you. Have a have a great day. Have a great holiday. Nice to meet you. Thanks. Bye.